I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and the fabulous Chris with you today. Chris, who have we got on? Uh, This afternoon, Alina, I have decided to take you down a lane of uh, British battleship design in the 1880s. No, I'm just kidding. We are welcoming back wonderful John Sadler, who is a military historian and lecturer at the University of Newcastle, who has written over 40 books, including Dunkirk to Belson, The Soldier's Own Dramatic Stories, Tommy at War, 1914 to 1918, and The Desert Rats and The Desert War, 1940 to 43. And he's here to talk to us about his new book, D-Day and the British Landings. Uh, John, welcome back. Good to see you. Good afternoon. Nice to be here. I thought John got really excited at first when you started saying that we're going to be doing boaty things. And then I thought I saw a glimmer on his face. He's like, yes, forget D-Day. Let's do boaty things. Probably not, because I really have no idea. I like battleships, and that's about as far as I could go, actually. I must be epic ones, but that's probably not going to help us with that. So I'm probably on safer ground, excuse the pun, with D-Day. That's okay. We can switch. You and I can become co-hosts, and we can interview Chris. Oh, fine, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe another time I haven't done any prep. <laughs> <laughs> go, Chris. Tell us, what was D-Day? I'm joking. Right, no, let's, let's, let's go with this properly. So Operation Overload was not the first landing of troops by the British in Northern Europe. They'd learned, had they learned any lessons from the deep landings? Uh, yes, they, you could say that the Operation Jubilee, the, the uh, Dieppe, the raid on Dieppe, uh, taught us, the British and therefore the Allies, a great deal about how not to manage an amphibious landing. Uh, everything that could possibly have gone wrong uh, at Dieppe did go wrong. Uh, the British tanks floundered on the, uh, uh, on the Pebble Beach. They couldn't get any traction. The lightweight landing craft that were being used were not bulletproof, which is clearly a disadvantage. The naval bombardment was too weak. The air support was too weak. And uh, we were directly attacking a heavily defended harbour. You might have thought that these lessons could be self-evident, but of course it cost, uh, tragically, a great deal of uh, brave Canadian lives to find this out. But definitely lessons were learned from the uh, Jubilee fiasco. The Germans had also quite 
heavily fortified the area and part of the Pas de Calais was the main fortress because that's where they thought they were going to attack. But the Atlantic Wall uh, was still very present down in Normandy. What kind of defences had the had the Wehrmacht put into place and how well defended were the, were the Normandy beaches? Prior to Rommel's arrival, the Atlantic Wall was uh, quite patchy. It was still patchy even at the time of D-Day itself, when Hitler wanted this continuous line of fortifications. Uh, but the line was not continuous. Rommel, when he arrived, he brought his customary energy, his dynamism, and to be fair, his uh, superb tactical uh, oversight to the problem. So he uh, increased work on the actual fixed defences, the gun positions, uh, what have you. He also um, created a whole lines of underwater obstacles just on the tide line, just to make life exciting if you were coming ashore. And he sowed, he flooded various areas where, which could be flooded, and he sowed his famous crop of Rommel's asparagus, uh, which were effectively pointed poles, trying uh, to make the job of any air landing extremely difficult. He didn't have the uh, the... The best troops, though, from memory, they they had a lot of um, sort of reserve troops or second line troops around in the area. Am I am I remembering correctly? Or uh... yes, it's right. The, the the German the Wehrmacht forces in Normandy were a mixed bunch. There were some, as it turned out, the Hitler Union divisions, the Panzer divisions, uh, some Flaschenjäger who were of the very highest quality. There were some very good German troops indeed, uh, but there were again there were a lot of old men and boys. There were a lot of, and there were even Indian army troops. These are chaps who'd been captured in the desert uh, and who had been turned around to, to fight for the Germans in a fairly lackluster manner. And there were also quite a few Russians, uh, quite a few Russians who'd been captured, been put in German uniform uh, without any great degree of enthusiasm, obviously, and had been bunged into the beaches. So the German defence was very much a mixed bag. The best were very good, but the not so good were, in cases, some cases, pretty poor. That's really interesting about the Russians. I never actually knew that. Yeah, I mean, obviously an awful lot of Russians, I mean, literally millions of Russians were captured during the Great Barbarossa uh, leaps and advances, the Kesselschlag battles in 1941. And of course, the Russian prisoners were treated very badly by the Germans. But some were given the chance, those who might have um, perhaps been white Russians in a previous existence or were not that keen on Stalin, as indeed many were not. Um, obviously, the Russian army then as now was not exactly by invitation. It was pretty much by... Um, by demand, by conscription. So there were, the Germans were quick to pick up on those Russians who were disaffected, he was, as they were called, um, who could be used either as second echelon troops, a lot of them took part in, in the Holocaust, uh, but quite a number were sent to Normandy, uh, particularly because the Germans perceived, the high command perceived, that Normandy, the Calvados coast, was a quiet sector. They were fixated on the fact that the Brits would come across the narrowest stretch of water to take Calais, which of course was a deep water harbour. Quite rightly, the Germans reasoned that the Allies would have to have a deep water harbour if they were to consolidate their bridgehead and expand it. What the Germans never got was the Allies, the British in particular, would actually bring our own military harbours with us. Never got that. Thank God. Absolutely. Um, I work volunteering at the Engineers Museum. They love the Mulberry Harbour. Yeah, quite uh, right, too, yeah. Absolutely. It's an amazing piece of engineering if, in, in British hands. I've seen ones where they didn't anchor them properly. But... Onto the actual invasion. So the first people in, the first guys onto the ground are literally coming out of planes, the airborne troops on the night before. How did the British contingent fare in the landings and their operations the night before? Well, the, um, the British airborne landings were intended to secure, if you like, the left flank of the invasion, the American airborne landings to uh, consolidate the right flank. 
And of course, these large-scale airborne operations at night are fraught with peril. Um, it's not so much surprising that so many went astray. It's amazing that any actually got there at all. And perhaps the two, uh, key, the two key actions are called Pegasus Bridge and the Merville Battery. At Pegasus Bridge, it was the Oxen Bucks Light Infantry who were coming in by glider. And their glider, glider pass, who are in many ways the unsung heroes uh, in spite of Rommel's asparagus, in spite of being in the dark, in spite of being over enemy territory, managed to land, I think the leading glider came in about 20 yards from the bridge, which is astonishing, oh. absolutely astonishing, because that meant that the, the, our, our guys had the advantage of surprise. That was the important thing, that they had the advantage of surprise. The German commanding officer was actually off. He was off in having a night out in Cannes. He came dashing back in his car, which was ambushed, held up by the Paris, who captured him. And apparently, as they opened the back doors of the car, two very scantily clad young Frenchmen leapt out and pelted back up the road to Cannes at a very rapid pace, much to the amusement of our guys. <laughs> <laughs> Literally being caught with your pants down. Yeah, uh, and then uh, there was the Merville Battery, which was um, Terence Otway. With his, he was supposed to have a battalion uh, of paratroopers with all their heavy weapons to attack the Merville Battery. And again, he was supposed to have the element of surprise, but softened up by a uh, preliminary air raid. Well, the air raid went straight, bombed the village, not the battery. It just woke up all the guys in the battery. Otway's men were scattered, so instead of 600, he had 150 uh, with very few heavy weapons. But being a very determined old Irishman, his guys were up for it. He attacked the battery anyway and took it at some cost, a magnificent feat of arms. So in spite of all the difficulties... Uh, the, the, the air landing, airborne troops in the air landing troops did their job pretty damn well. I did hear this apocryphal story. I don't know how true it is, but during the air raid, some of the powers found a, a bunker and went and hid in it. And halfway through, halfway through the air raid, the door to the bunker opened. And two German officers ducked in and were sat, in, sat by the door. And uh, one of the powers turned his torch on and went, think you're in the wrong bunker, mate. And the Germans just went, yep, just got up and walked out the door. <laughs> I don't know how true it is, but I really like that story. It is one of the legends of Didi. I'm not sure. You like it to be true. That's right. It's quite gentle. Yeah. Yeah. So we were here first. Yeah. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be really honest here. My only knowledge from D-Day is either the film by Tom Hanks or uh, Band of Brothers. Americans. Yeah. So I do apologise considering being an Eastern Front historian rather than a Western Front historian. Yeah. But for me, I want to know what was, why did everything go wrong with this air raid bombing? Because you watch, for example, Band of Brothers as they're all being scattered left, right and centre. Why were they not actually reaching their desired posts? Um, you can blame M. Tedder to a degree. He was of the opinion that the uh, flak anti-aircraft fire would be so heavy over the Cotentin Peninsula uh, that the losses amongst the, amongst the aircraft which were pulling the gliders uh, and the actual uh, aircraft from which the powers would jump would be shot to pieces in the sky. And the pilots themselves were quite nervous, as you might well be, in the circumstance. So, uh, and obviously, again, flying a large return of aircraft over enemy territory, and it's a, it's a fairly long way down the Cotentin Peninsula when you're being shot at, and getting them to land in exactly the right place is, is a tremendous feat. It hadn't really been tried before. This was, this was airborne warfare in a scale that had never, ever been tried. The Germans had tried it in Crete, and that went horribly wrong. So, again, what is perhaps remarkable, not so much that so many people went astray and it took them so long to find their units, but that they actually managed to land and, to be fair, secure their objectives, in spite of the confusion. 
Well, one one thing was helpful that uh, obviously the village of Samaritans was a was a prime target, and <clears throat> as luck or ill luck would have it, uh, a fire had broken out in the village that night, and the German forces were under the command of the unfortunate named Lieutenant Leutnant Zick, who uh, got the locals uh, with a chain of buckets to put out the fire. And suddenly they look up, and here it looks like uh, you know it looks like it's snowing, it's snowing paratroops because the pirates actually could see the burning town. And of course, quite a few of them were, were they themselves were illuminated by the flames. And therefore became um, a target. Of course, the famous story of the chap who gets hooked up on the steeple of the church and stays there for some little while. Yeah. Do, do you get many instances of men being shot on parachutes? Because I know that happened at Crete, and there, I think it happened at Arnhem as well. I, it's one of those things that you're not supposed to do. But um, my granddad once said, you know, the guy's coming down on a parachute and he's going to kill you when he hits. The Germans certainly had no scruples about shooting at uh, parachutists. But in the dark, a guy in a fine if he's lit up by the flames in the village, you're a bit of a target. But in the dark, you're not you're you're, you're a virtually an invisible target. And so um, I don't think it's probably fair to say that the American forces didn't suffer huge or high casualties in consequence of them being shot before landing. Obviously, I mean it was a costly operation. There were heavy casualties, mostly uh, which occurred during the subsequent fighting for Sam Ericles and indeed the other the various other strong points. Okay, let's go back to D-Day. Yep. Let's go back to D-Day, that actual D-Day. So the British are attacking on a broad front of three beaches, Sword, yeah. Gold and Juno. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the experiences of these men as they went ashore. These were, this was the Calvados coast. And again, this was an amphibious operation on a scale never before attempted. I have to bear in mind, Overlord was, um, was the greatest amphibious naval military operation of all time. Put 100,000 men ashore on the five beaches. The, I mean, the, the, the British beaches were uh, Sword, which British beach, Juno, Canadian beach, and Gold, which was uh, the British, uh, another British beach. And it was my division, if you like, the 50th and Thumbling Division, which came ashore there. So the lessons from Dieppe were that you had to try and get off the beach inland as quick as possible. You attacked mid-tide, so there was a chance to clear the obstacles, but also it was a shorter distance up the beach. Trouble is, as the tide comes in, the beach gets shorter, and, you, uh, and the, the risk is that all of your supplies, all of your men, your vehicles, your tanks, get bogged on the beach. Montgomery had turned the whole original concept around. The idea was originally the infantry would go ashore, and they would clear a path for the armour. Monty turns out all the way around, and he commissioned his brother-in-law, Percy Hobart, Lieutenant General Percy Hobart, Hobo, as he was known, who was even more difficult to get on with than Monty himself. Monty rescued him from being a corporal in the home guard. That's what he'd fallen to. But Hobart formed 79th Armoured Division, uh, who were a, a kind of a bit of a joke. But what they produced was astonishing. They produced a whole range of bespoke tanks called Hobart's Funnies. These are flamethrowing tanks. There were swimming tanks. I don't make tanks swim. There were swimming tanks. There were bridge-laying tanks. Uh, there were bunker-busting tanks with petard guns. A whole range of specialist armour, which on the Allied, let's say the British and Canadian beaches, made a hell of a difference. The Americans uh, did not take do Herbart's funnies. They, on Omaha Beach, they did have some um, duplex D swimming tanks, but they launched them too far out. Herbart had said you could not launch any further than 3,000 yards out, and it had to be in a flat sea. The Americans launched in a choppy sea 6,000 yards out, and 29 other tanks went straight to the bottom, as you can imagine, taking their crews with them. And so the experience on the beaches was definitely the British beaches, now including the Canadians and that, will uh, forgive me. The Infantry came ashore with far less casualties 
than had actually been anticipated. Then there were casualties, obviously. There were many German strong points which held up the advance. And yet the Allies, by the end, the Allies, that's Britain and Canadian and the Free French and the Free Poles, all of whom fought magnificently, had attained most, by no means all, but most of their beachhead objectives. The British only went wrong on Sword Beach, where insufficient time had been allowed to move inland from the beach to take Khan. Khan was one of um, Montgomery's first day objectives, uh, but in fact, that was a wholly unrealistic proposition. It took six weeks to take Khan. Absolutely. Um, just drifting back to the funny tanks, how, how effective were they? I know, um, again, going back to my granddad, he said that the flail tank terrified Germans because the, uh, cha the motorized chains for taking out mines, that they used to use them just for chasing German infantry because they just <laughs> tore them apart. But how, how effective were, were the, were the Fobar, uh, funny tanks? Well, let's put it this way. If I was being chased by a flail tank, I, I would be very, very rapidly. It would be like some prehistoric monster lumbering after you. Uh, and to be fair to Hobart, you know, he had a relatively short time to produce all these vans. They did work. The bunker busters uh, did uh, knock out German bunkers and clear the path up uh, into the dunes. The flail tanks did help to suppress the minefields. And obviously with the infantry going in behind the tanks, the infantry are sheltered from enemy small arms fire. Not against, not against big guns, obviously, but if you're advancing behind a tank, you're damn sight less exposed than if you're advancing in the open. So if one looks at the successes of the British, Canadians, uh, Free French, Free Poles on their beaches on the day, I would, and I think the, the consensus is with me on this, that the uh, funnies did their job. They did their job pretty well. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Stan Hollis had quite a memorable landing. Tell us a little bit about him and how did he get his Victoria Cross? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, Stan Holtz, Stan Holtz uh, from the Green Howards, was the only VC actually one on the beaches. And uh, his, his unit had a, a pretty tough landing. Most of the officers were knocked out by machine gun fire from German bunkers. And Stan, who was a fairly fierce character by any standard, uh, went in, he got saw red and just attacked them. He charged German bunkers, knocked out, I think, two lines of bunkers. 
uh, and then several more during the afternoon whilst the troops were advancing uh, through urban country, trying to reach Bayer, which was the objective. So I think he accounted for about five or six bunkers with their occupants in the course of a single afternoon and therefore saved his battalion many, many casualties, for which he, and quite rightly, uh, was awarded the Victoria Cross, which he later wore in court, I think, when he was, he was summoned to court for some, because he was a publican after the war, I think he was a bit of a wild lad, Stan, and he had to go to court for some misdemeanour, but he stood in the dock wearing his VC. And nobody's going to convict him. He's probably guilty as charged, but he got off with it because you know, here's a man wearing his Victoria Cross. You're not going to send him down for the licensing defence. So um, he, he had a, a colourful, I think he was a pretty colourful character, a colourful, but he certainly on D-Day, he was a great, he was a hero, absolute hero. He did the business, no question. We get other uh, colourful characters as well, like uh, Lionel Lord Lovett and, oh, his, and his Piper. Uh, yes, Bill Millen. Yeah, wasn't there a story that the Germans uh, didn't want to shoot the, bag, the the piper because they felt that he was clearly insane? <laughs> um, well, that, that story was certainly put about. I, I imagine Bill Milne probably hoped it was true on the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, to be fair, the Germans, you know, the Germans tend to be quite literal, I think. So seeing some madman in a skirt walking up the bridge playing a, a rather strange musical instrument um, must have seemed slightly eccentric to them, I would say. But there's no doubt that Bill Mill, well, it was a tremendous rallying cry for the commanders as Lovett's men came ashore. Uh, I had a, an uncle by March who was, who was actually right there, who was actually in number four commander and was on the beach. And he did say that seeing Bill Mill, and it was a pretty tough assignment. They, they had some heavy duty work to get through those bunkers, then they had to get uh, to Pegasus Bridge to link up with the Oxen Bucks before they could be overrun. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was no easy task that they had, but certainly. I, was, I knew somebody was there. He said, yeah, the only was absolutely bonkers. He had to be bonkers. Lovett was bonkers. To do the job, he had to be bonkers. Uh, it was no place for anybody with any level of sanity. And uh, yeah, they did it. And of course, there's a famous story that when Lovett arrives, um, when he arrives at the bridge and he meets Harry, he said, awfully sorry, a chap with three minutes late. Can you forgive me? <laughs> and then he, he got, if I remember correctly, he then gets his men to march across Pegasus Bridge yes. again yes. to the bagpipes. yes. Yes, formally taking possession. And whilst you know, these things are all classic British eccentric, there is a point of it, it's about morale. You know, our guys march over this, which was a vital bridge for the Germans, and they had lost it. And we had taken it, and that had opened up the road to Khan. So it, it, was a big, it was a big moment. Uh, and if the guys got a bit of glory, I would go, why the hell not? They deserved it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And as, as you said, the British eccentricity is, is just one of those things. Uh, again, my granddad used to say that the Germans couldn't, couldn't go fathom out what the British were going to do next. <laughs> no, just, they just, the Germans could not deal with that. It was just, you know, they are too literal. I mean, they're damn good soldiers, no question. But they're extremely brave men. They, they fought very hard on D-Day. No, uh, nobody can run them down, but that was just a bit too much. So we've got the landing on the beaches uh, was one thing, but they then got to hold on to them. Um, yeah. And so you've got the advance onto Bayou and Calm, which is another proposition. And also, as uh, one of our, one of our uh, history hack regulars, Lockie, likes to say, there are several things that are absolutely constant in life, death, tax, and German counterattacks. Yes. Uh, yes. What other yes. issues yeah. are British then going to encounter in the planned advance and well, just holding on to the ground they've bitten? The, I was, the first job of D-Day was to get ashore, to bite, if you like. Second objectives to hold, to hold the ground you've got, and obviously advance into Normandy. And because Montgomery always said his plan was to bring down the German fury on British Canadian troops to the east to allow the Americans to build up their strength and attack from the west, which, of course, was what happened. Now, the key element in the German defence were the panzer divisions. 
Uh, these were the ace, uh, the ace in the hole, if you like. Now, von Rundstedt wanted to hold the panzers in a central reserve so he could dole them out as well, because he still thought that Pas de Calais was a target. Rommel was always convinced that Normandy was the target, wanted the panzer divisions as close to the beaches as he could get to launch an instant counterattack. Now, as it happens, Rommel was right. But Hitler got sick of the squabbling between these two generals and said, right, OK, guys, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I, the Fuhrer, I will decide when to release the panzer divisions, which is good news for the Allies, because Hitler slept in. He slept in till midday most days. He spent half the night ranting, and then he, he would sleep in the middle. And that's basically, you don't just knock on Adolf's door, give him a poke and say, come on, wake up, mate, you know, the, the DDL lands are happening. It didn't work like that. So the, it, was, it was after midday, it was early afternoon before the panzers were released. But that still uh, prevented the release of the panzers, uh, meant that the British advancing on Khan or towards Khan, having been held up by two strong points of Hillman and Morris, then encountered the panzers head on. And that really caused the advance to grind to a halt. And then, as you say, the Germans put in counterattack after counterattack, and Normandy became uh, what they call a material schlack, a battle of attrition. And one thing that Montgomery, who was meticulous in his planning of the beaches, didn't seem to get was the nature of the country inland. Because if you go to Normandy today, there's very little of the old Bacarge country left. It's all been, heads have all been lifted and it's, it's much bigger fields these days. But what you had was a patchwork landscape, these very small enclosed fields with thick ancient hedges with sunken lanes running in between and nice big strong stone uh, farmhouses. Because the Germans could make a an impressive defensive position out of a molehill. So give a nice square Norman farmhouse and they will turn it into a fortress. So the eyes hadn't really thought just how hard it was going to be to fight their way through this country, which is ideal for the defender. One guy with a Panzerfaust will stop an entire tank on. You just need to knock out the first tank in the line, and it's almost impossible to get off the narrow lane. So there was significant well, underestimation of the nature of the problem, which the ground itself would present, and the Germans were not slow in taking advantage. Oh, absolutely. One of the Allies' biggest strengths was air power. Yes. And close support and although they were knocking out railway lines along with the resistance stopping fresh reinforcements coming up from the center and even from the Pas de Calais in places the ground support couldn't support an advance through the bocage as well because that I mean you had uh, instances where the British would be going down or the allies would be going down a road and on the other side of the hedge the Germans would be going the other way yes yes and it, uh, there are very few pockets of the original Bokash left. There are a few in Normandy. When you see this, you think, God, I would not wish to be trying to attack anybody, especially the Germans, uh, through this ground. You know, how, can, how does your artillery support you? They haven't got a target. And the risk is you're going to drop a stonk on top of yourself. Even your mortars, you know, can't really give you the level of support. Your armour gets bogged down or stopped or knocked out. It becomes a soldier's battle, having to fight your way hedgerow by hedgerow. Uh, which is which is um, uh, thankless and very risky business, and of course casualties did mount quite alarmingly. So, what what was the the British solution to fighting in the Bocage? We, we've talked about the issues and how well it could be defended. What was the solution to that? Was it just dogged offensive? It was actually the Americans who came up with the solution of fitting a large shovel-like, claw-like device to the front of your tank, which means you can actually chew through the hedge. So instead, of, imagine the tank has to rear up, uh, coming up over the embankment across the underbelly of the tank. It's perfectly exposed uh, to a panzerfaust, so indeed any uh, form of missile that's our panzerschreck. So by being able to literally barrel through the hedge, your tank is less exposed. It also means the tank can burst through, and then your troops can follow. 
it's still a battle of attrition. And what was grinding down the Germans was their inability to reinforce their troops in the field because the Allies uh, were destroying any road traffic. The tank-busting typhoons did a tremendous job. Uh, all the, the, the bridges uh, on the east flank had all been destroyed by the paratroops. And the Germans were suffering a, a chronic short supply. And we should never forget the D-Day isn't just a British, Canadian, and American offensive. It is a Russian offensive as well. In the East, the Russians have launched Operation Bagration, which was a massive blow against Army Group Center, and which was a hugely successful Russian offensive. Stalin was once, I think, acidly commented to Churchill that his men advanced more miles in a day than our guys had advanced in yards, which perhaps be a little unfair. Uh, but it wasn't that far from the truth. The Germans achieved major breakthrough in the East, uh, and the fact was the Germans couldn't, they simply couldn't fight effectively on two fronts. The other, their big asset down at Bayonne was 2nd SS, uh, that's Ike, Panzer Division, uh, which was set off to move north to join the Normandy fight. Now that normally would take them about three days, but mainly due to resistance attacks, due to the fact they couldn't really uh, move by day, it took them three weeks. And that uh, severely restricted their capacity had uh, that full panzer division reached D-Day at the early stage of the fighting, that, inter that intervention could have been successful. The French resistance paid a terrible price for that, particularly uh, the, the instance of Oradour sur Glane, where the entire population was murdered in reprisal for an attack uh, on the SS, SS Con. Yeah, if I remember, that attack was so... Um, is, is absolutely brutal, the... the village remains as a, as a shrine, yes. but the, even the Germans were horrified by it and the commander was under investigation, but was killed in action before. Uh, yes, they say, it said that he went out in his last fight not wearing steel helmet because he knew that uh, you know, his, his days were probably numbered anyway. Because the citizens of Oradour, as far as enemies were, had no part in the attack uh, for which this revenge was being sought. And yes, if, if one goes to Oradour, the French have left the entire settlement as a uh, shattered monument to uh, the atrocity. And it is, a, it's somewhere, to me, it's as atmospheric in its own way as the case of Auschwitz. It's somewhere where you ought to go because you really get it. When you see prams abandoned in the street, you know, burnt out cars, you think, wow, you know, this, is, this was total war by any standards. And it was a, uh, it, it never, certainly for me, it never loses the shock effect. No, no, it's uh, really quite horrific. Um... I don't think it was that SS unit, but talking of SS tankers, we probably couldn't go much further without talking about Michael Wittmann, uh, the Panzer Ace. Um, he, caused, he caused quite a problem for, yeah, uh, was, yeah. I think it was mainly the Americans that he was more of a problem for. Uh, well, he, um, he gave us a bit of a scene to it with our Zambokage. I mean, we lost, I think it was 25 vehicles in that engagement. Uh, Wittmann was, yes, he was a, he was a brilliant uh, tank case. There is, I, I know from interviewing uh, Tankers, the, the our guys, Allied uh, tank, that they were they were uh, in the belief when they went ashore that we would they would encounter Tiger tanks and that they would lose six Allied tanks for every Tiger. In fact, there were very few Tigers on the western front, most of them were on the east. The tank they'd been mostly up against was the Mark IV Special, the long seventy-five mil gun, which is still a pretty formidable opponent. But Wittmann obviously uh, did the classic thing: he shot up the first vehicle, then shot up the last vehicle, and then just worked his way down the column. And um, Villars en Bocage was a significant defeat for the eyes. I mean, it wasn't a big battle, uh, but it just showed what a determined defense by a highly skilled, uh, small group of highly skilled German tanks could actually achieve. Of course, Whitman himself was probably, I think, killed by, uh, uh, by a missile from the air, a rocket from the air rather than ground fire. I think, I'm not sure. 
But I, he certainly, obviously, he was, he was dead within a very short period thereafter. Yeah, but from memory, I believe there's uh, about four, di- like with the Red Baron, there's like four different people who claim to have killed yes. Pittman. Yeah. He was definitely sure. dead, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the main thing is he's out of the yes, game. He's definitely deceased. I've been to his grave, so yeah. Yeah, there were, again, you know, several of the, who killed the Red Baron. Well, anybody also says the success, success has many fathers, but uh, failure is always an orphan, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one ever wants to take responsibility. Yeah. So moving back away from like the tactical side of it, and the, uh, what was what was the campaign like for, in hindsight, for the, for the guys on the ground who were fighting it? Uh, it was... Uh, I think a pretty horrific uh, conflict. I have interviewed, obviously, over the years, many veterans, uh, most of whom, of course, now sadly gone, who served with the Northern Regiment, particularly the Dunlite Infantry, uh, in the in the course of the Normandy battle. And it was a uh, it was a battle of attrition. It was uh, it was a slow grinding battle against a very determined, very brave, and extremely resourceful enemy. The Germans might have been outnumbered and outgunned, but that didn't mean they couldn't fight. So it was, uh, and it's exhausting. You know, it's draining, exhausting day after day, clawing your way forward with, I'm sure people have read, you know, the, 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 the tanks as well, armour suffered heavy casualties. It was a horrific, and of course, most of the fighting was in fairly, it's a big battle, but it takes place in various relatively small areas at different times. So, yes, it was a, it was a hell of a hard fight and took a, a toll in every sense of those who uh, took part in it. Chris is laughing at me because I look like I know nothing of what you're talking about, which is very true. Fair enough. I, I thought more, like, more that I've just completely dominated the whole conversation. Christopher, it's fine. You dominate the conversation all you like. It's good because you know your onions and I know nothing about battle campaigns and this part of the history. So, Chris, it's, it's your spotlight. Go for it. I will, I'll add one anecdote, if I may, which I think sort of sums the whole thing up. It's a pal of mine whose father was a beach master on daily. That's a pretty responsible job, damn dangerous job. You're, you're, you're affecting the traffic warden and a must-kill target for every gun on the beach. And my pal asked him for years, because he was interested in daily, had asked his father to say what it was like. He said, I did my bit. Like all the veterans, didn't really want to talk about being there, done my bit, you know, came back from the war, that's it, forgotten. And then when his father was obviously... Uh, getting on, I think he was in his 90s, he was in a nursing home. Uh, my father said, well, look, you know, Dad, if, you, if you're going to tell me about this, we haven't got that much time, so, uh, you know, maybe this might be a good opportunity. Which thing am I saying? Right, son, you've asked me about Dida, I will tell you. Um, yes, I was there. It was awfully noisy, and I had the very distinct impression we weren't at all welcome. That was it. <laughs> that was a one-sentence summary of the D-Day campaign. That takes a lot of beating. Uh, you probably want to edit this one out, Alina, but my, uh, during the 50th anniversary of D-Day landings, my granddad was uh, walking down Gillingham High Street and a member of the British, uh, British Legion came up and said, uh, what were you doing on D-Day, Sonny? And granddad looked him square in the eye and said, I was sitting halfway up a bloody mountain in Italy, drawing off the Panzer Grenadiers, making it safe for you guys to land. <laughs> well, the D-Day judges. Yeah, the guys who served in Italy, uh, I think were slightly embittered the fact that we thought they were just you know, lying on the beaches and sunning themselves and drinking Corolla or Stellarato. Yeah, no, it was, it was a very hard fight going on. Yeah, yeah he, he said something about because he, he did uh, Sicily and then Salerno, and he said that yeah. um, when they came back, they all wore the, because uh, Lady Astor had said that the, they all had VD, so they all wore the VD patches on the yes. uniforms when they got the ship back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right, yes. John, thank you. This has been fantastic. Is it? Anytime. 
and uh, we'd love to have you back on again sometime. Yeah, and yeah, uh, anytime you like, pick a wall, I'll talk about it. may not be right, but I will pick that uh, and talk about it. And, My, your, uh, and your book is out from Amberley in August. Well, it's out, it's out, it came out in 2019, so it's on the shelves, even as we speak. Even better. Um, so, um, yeah, thanks very much, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Indeed. My pleasure. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.